Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Plucking Up podcast. I am really interested in the conversation that we are having this week. And if you've been a listener to the show for any length of time, you'll probably be like, no, duh, Liz, this is a topic you kind of talk about a lot, or it's pretty obvious that you invite people onto the show who will engage you in this conversation. And we're doing it again this week. We are talking about, well, gosh, how would I sum it up? I could use some maybe listener help or creativity here. Let's call it the other side of the patriarchy (laughs) because we are talking about some of the ways, some of the kind of unhealthy, toxic parts of our culture and our society and how that is specifically negatively impacting boys and men. And to have that conversation, I have a guest on the show named Jake Kaufman. Jake Kaufman is a business coach and he is the author of a book called Let Love In. And he spends a fair amount of his time and life and vocation thinking through these issues and also has some really unique and interesting lived experience himself. So I am going to say from the get-go, I'm going to give you a long warning a long runway for this warning, if you will. This episode, we really dive in. We go deep, fast, and we are talking about some topics that are not appropriate for little tiny plucky ears. So take this moment to change the channel, yeah. Um, But it is a conversation that I feel like isn't had enough that I'm really grateful for the time and the space to bring this conversation to light just around trauma and specifically around how some types of trauma um, are impacted or shall we say exasperated by a sense of secrecy or shame and how that really specifically can impact boys and men. And then we also have what I think is a really interesting conversation around vulnerability. Vulnerability is obviously a hot topic and it's something that we hear a lot about, but I think we could still use some more really thoughtful and meaningful conversation about what is vulnerability? How do we do that in a way that is really healthy for ourselves and those we're in relationship with? And then when are the times and spaces that we could actually put some boundaries up around our vulnerability to create caring spaces um, for ourselves and for others? So without further ado, my conversation with Jake Kaufman. Jake, I'm so excited to have you on the Plucking Up podcast. Thanks for being here. Liz, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'll start off by telling our guests that you, you're you on this show for kind of a unique reason. This doesn't happen too often for us, but I came across a podcast or a video or reel, something yeah. where you were sharing some things just in, in while I was scrolling. And I literally just without thinking twice about it, I didn't even look you up. I just sent you a DM and was like, hey, I have a podcast. Will you be on the show? Yeah. And you said yes. And that wasn't that long ago. And <laughs> like so, last week. Yeah. Yeah. This you What you all are witnessing right now is a very newly budding I just slid into Jake's DMs, and here we are, one week later, uh, having a conversation. So thanks for responding to the DM from a stranger. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm excited me. to get to know you more. <laughs> yeah. um, well, will you start off totally. for our listeners and for me, sure. frankly, because I don't know the answer to the question I'm about to ask you. Um, will you just start off by giving us a little, like, 101 of your history? Yeah, what's your background? What was your childhood like? Yeah. 
How did you grow up? What was your, um, maybe some of your earliest memories or not that were kind of indicators of maybe where you would end up later in life? Oh man. Okay. So no pressure. Well, let me do this in the process of giving you context around my background. I'm going to kind of lay what I feel is going to be the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about ultimately. Great. So my name is Jake Kaufman. I'm a men's transformation coach, but Getting that out of the way real quick. I grew up in a really small town in in rural Michigan and grew up in the conservative Christian church. And why that's important, not for my sake, but for the sake of our listeners, is to know that whenever you grow up in a society that is bent on achievement, making something Mm -hmm. of yourself, establishing yourself, or religion for that matter, if you're brought up in religion, naturally, it creates an environment in which we repress the less than ideal qualities and characteristics about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we posture and position the ideal qualities and characteristics about ourselves because it tees us up for a life of performance. That creates a pressure cooker. It creates a pressure cooker both for men and women. It just looks slightly different. In the work Mm -hmm. that I do with men, this has them cultivating and creating this performance identity, also referred to as the false self, the ego, that has them overly focused on who they need to become and what they need to do in order to be loved, accepted, and successful. But it's not who they genuinely, authentically are beneath the surface. Mm. Mm -hmm. So for me, I woke up to this reality when I was probably like 27 years old, uh, you know, I was in the corporate world. I was fairly successful. I've never had an issue with creating success. I've always had an issue or love for that matter. Um, and, and attracting a relationship. I've always had an issue with keeping, maintaining and nurturing success or love within the context of a romantic relationship, because at a certain point in time, a certain level of success or depth of connection fundamentally felt unsafe to me. Hmm. And so, of course, I needed to self-sabotage. We sabotage because we don't feel safe. And so this had me unconsciously push love away, push success away. And what I found out in my work with a therapist, once I started to become aware of the fact that I was repeating these various patterns, despite the relationship, despite the job profession. In my work with my therapist, what I ultimately came to was that when I was really young, I experienced this acute incident of sexual abuse that Mm. really was this catalyzing moment, if you will, Mm -hmm. for my Mm -hmm. development as an adolescent, where I constantly Mm -hmm. felt the need to prove myself in order to overcompensate for my own personal inadequacies that was born out of that traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Now, this is true for all of us, quite frankly, because we all experience trauma. We now know that trauma is much, much more about what happens inside of us as a result of what happened to us, Mm -hmm. as opposed to what actually happened. Mm Mm-hmm the stories, the beliefs that we've made up about ourselves as a result of what has happened to us. And so we just continue to carry these stories around and recycle these stories in the present moment. 
and until we reconcile them, we are bound to repeat them and project them onto other people. So that's kind of the background as far as what led me to this work today. My background uh, was succeeding in all of these various facets of life in terms of being able to create success or create, you know, romantic partnership or even as it relates to to my health. But all of it was really just a mask. All of it, all of it was me living from the space of this high performer persona that was always meant to fall apart. Hmm. Will you and maybe we're going to kind of take an interesting turn we might we might be going here sooner than we normally do but i'm curious about the moment was there a moment in your story that led you whether it was to you starting therapy or some other action that you took but what was kind of your point what was your breaking point what was your mm-hmm. uh your low moment or this sense of what made you go from i'm going and i'm doing the thing and i'm spinning on my wheels and i'm doing you know i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing to like whoa 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 whoa, whoa something's wrong something's broken something needs to be addressed yep. can you tell us more about what took you from kind of the old story into the new story that breaking point or break open moment sure moment it was actually years after i for the very first time acknowledged what i had gone through as sexual abuse like literally mm. 5 years later wow so i was in a completely different career i had moved from chicago to california which i talk about in my book i dove into the world of personal development but in many ways i was still hiding i was still masking i was still acting as if i was successful that I had it all together, that I was fine. And how many people do you know are guilty of that? I mean, most people in the online space, if we're being honest, and it's not just isolated to people in the online space. This is true for most people. Sure. Um, we're all guilty of this to some degree. I ultimately felt called to share my story of sexual abuse on social media. And in that moment, when I did, this performer persona, this mask, or these various masks that I wore to project this image of someone who had it all together was completely ripped away. And the level of connection that was created by virtue of me sharing, because as you can probably imagine, I started to receive all sorts of text messages and comments on the post Mm -hmm. and even phone calls from closer Mm -hmm. friends and family. All of that connection was too much for my nervous system to handle. And I ultimately experienced what is clinically referred to as an acute nervous system breakdown. I essentially had a panic attack on steroids. And so, you know, that was this this very catalyzing moment for me, if you will, to to go on this deeper journey of healing, because in that moment I was I was totally suspended and I was completely out of control. Okay, this is so interesting. And I want to ask two questions related to the same moment of sharing this part about your story. One question is about the before and one question is about the after. So before you shared, do you think that as a man experiencing childhood sexual abuse, what challenges Mm -hmm. do you feel like you faced in being vulnerable and sharing about that that Mm -hmm. might be different might because of course these are all generalizations sure. and you've never been a woman I don't think or lived lived as a woman so you obviously are answering this just from like observation yeah. but how do you think that experience of being sexually abused as a boy yeah. is different 
in when it comes to terms of being vulnerable with that sharing and kind of starting that road to healing? Well, let me be the first to say that I think our society is incredibly inadept when it comes to dealing with the problem of pain. Mm. For men specifically, men aren't initiated in our in our culture, in our society. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there is never this experience where they cross over, this formal experience mm-hmm. where they cross over from boyhood into manhood and they shift mm-hmm. they shift from a life of individuation, which is all about the self. I mean, which in many ways encapsulates the patriarchy, right? Yeah, yeah. To transformation and transcendence, where your life is no longer about you. Mm-hmm. So there's there's no there's no initiation that has been widely practiced in Eastern cultures for centuries. That is really necessary for men to to make that necessary jump in psychological development. That at least in the U.S. has them trapped in this adolescent phase of mm. of proving, of mm-hmm. posturing, mm-hmm. of domineering, mm-hmm. and of course this just mm-hmm. fuels the patriarchy. Right? Is mm-hmm. you have men that are trapped at this stage of psychological development, and they don't know any better. First and mm-hmm. but even if they did. How do you actually go about breaking out of it? Very few men actually mm-hmm. have the answers to that question and have been initiating themselves to then be able to support other men in doing the same. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. So you you feel like part of the reason that it was a challenge for you to share about this experience is because you psychologically were still in a place where it was like your main goal in life was I have to show up and prove that I'm worthy, prove that I'm successful, yeah. prove that I'm strong. And I imagine that the experience of, yeah, experiencing sexual assault, I think one of the reasons that it's just so damaging to the human spirit is because it does it makes us feel small and it makes us feel out of control and it makes us feel weak and it makes us question ourselves and it makes us feel insignificant or unworthy or all these really, really big emotions. And so yeah. you're saying because of the messaging that I got about what it what it means to be a boy or a man in our culture, my my job was to show up and to look strong, to look like I was successful, yeah. to look like, you know, I was unstoppable. And this experience would fly it like it it's vulnerable and it's uh it's there's admitting like a tenderness and a vulnerability and not a weakness but i think there is somebody exploited especially when it's childhood sexual assault someone did exploit your weakness in that you were a child Mm -hmm. um and so you feel like those things kept you in hiding kept you kind of keeping this part of your life a secret yeah absolutely because all of these masks that we're talking about these various personality traits they're just adaptive traits. They're just compensating strategies mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. prevent pain from happening. Again, all of these personality traits are really just adaptive traits or compensating strategies in order to protect ourselves from pain or from the possibility of pain. Mm-hmm. So 
after I was abused, this this acute incident simply was this catalyst for me to go into this phase of of proving, protecting, and perform ultimately performing, which yeah. is to say operating from the space of this false persona that isn't actually me, but who I think I need to be in order to self-protect, where it has me much more concerned and focused on other people's acceptance and what I need to do in order to achieve other people's acceptance or sure. or achieve success rather than being authentic. I've often heard, you know, statistics. Again, my world, I was kind of explaining to Jake before we started the show, my day job, I am steeped in the understanding of how the patriarchy deeply damages women and girls. And a lot of times that shows up in the form of sexual assault, sexual abuse, domestic violence, all of these manifestations of of patriarchy globally. And one of those is kind of in the realm of sexual abuse, sexual assault, violence against women. And a lot of the statistics show that women are a lot more impacted by sexual violence than, than men are. And I believe that that's true. Just anecdotally, I, I don't question that more women suffer from sexual violence than men. However, I have often read statistics and wondered how accurate they are. Like I've gone, yeah, I believe that men are the men and boys are the minority. Are they as much of the minority as we think they are? Or do no. we have a reporting problem on our hands? And how many men, boys and men, have experienced sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and are not raising their hands? Are less not reporting than 1%. It? Less than 1% what? Less than 1% of men who have experienced exactly what you just oh, described wow. ever okay. actually report it. Wow. So we do have a massive reporting problem. I can almost guarantee you that the statistics are roughly the same. It's just that men refuse to talk about it. Mm, The same. I don't know enough to have an opinion on it. I just have my own lived experience. But when I see those statistics, I have thought before, well, gosh, if I were a boy or a man, that would only probably make – that would only – that would only serve to probably keep me in silence if I thought I was such a minority. Like – we all have hard things that have happened to us <clears throat> in our life. And then that's that's just like there's pain, mm-hmm. right? Pain is when something bad happens to us or we experience grief or loss or abuse or whatever it is. That's pain. And then we have suffering. Mm-hmm. Suffering is the story we tell ourselves about the pain that can really amplify already very real, very valid, very damaging pain. Mm-hmm. And I've often wondered if there is a certain type of suffering specifically that men that experience Mm -hmm. abuse of any kind, whether that's sexual abuse, but especially abuse in the realm of sexual abuse or even domestic violence, that it's like you've got the pain of that situation. And then I imagine the story that happens in addition to that is this is so humiliating. I'm so broken. I'm so alone. That's the real trauma is the story on top of the pain that that correct yeah. how we in how we internalize the experience mm-hmm. is the real trauma yeah because that yeah, that's what feel... that's what far outlives the experience itself and mm-hmm. that's what has us relive it long long after it's over and this yeah. is what was true for me after that experience love 
connection, intimacy fundamentally felt unsafe because mm-hmm. I was violated. And so whenever I opened myself up to being loved or vulnerable, right, my nervous system said, hey, there's a physical threat here, mm-hmm. which isn't actually true. It was the appearance of sure. a, it was my perception based on my lived experience. That's the real trauma where yeah. we continue to relive the experience long after it's over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think anytime we specifically feel that we're alone in our pain, a lot of that shame gets amplified. Right. And the moment you can say, the mo- I think one of the most healing things any human can ever experience is being in a relationship or in a room or in a moment where someone says, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, you're not alone. And I even wonder, I, I haven't, you know, I think about the Me Too movement, which just to say, I'm like, no qualms with that. Very grateful it happened. Very necessary. Like sure. accountability, community support for women who have experienced sexual violence or harassment is like, I, I consider that a good movement in our social uh, sure. progress. And I'm curious, what was it like to be a man who had experienced sexual violence, who had not yet been public with that experience, watching a society of women mm-hmm. saying, raising their hand, a lot of them for the first time also raising their hand and saying, me too. And seeing, mm-hmm. I think probably one of the most beautiful things that happened in the Me Too movement is I think for a lot of women, there was power that came from knowing that they weren't alone totally. and from that kind of shame narrative of you did something wrong. You asked for it. You shouldn't have taken the job. You shouldn't have sure. taken the meeting in the hotel room. Whatever the story is that a woman a woman tells herself to justify the violence that had been done for her. But I think what happened is when so many women shared their story, there was this sense of like, it wasn't my fault. I'm not alone. I'm not like, right. it's, I'm not the only one who ever, you know, experienced this. What was it like being a man and kind of watching that like community-based mm-hmm. liberation happen and you're still going like, I'm carrying that with me? So I had already started to work through my abuse years prior to the okay. Me Too movement. Um, I started yeah. working through it when I was 27 in the context of therapy. So I hadn't shared it publicly yet, but that would have when I was, what, it was 27, so 10 years ago. So we're talking 2013 roughly. Um, but I mean, I personally speaking, I was proud of women for standing up and for, you know, claiming their power and owning their voice with regard to what they've experienced. Um, from the perspective of men, although I never thought this at the time, but, you know, I'm kind of convinced at this point that the reason that, you know, abusers are people who have been abused themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it made me feel incredibly sad for men because you have so many men who are just passing on their wounds as opposed mm. to their wisdom and they're hurting people because they're hurting people mm. as a result. Hurt people, hurt people. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it made me incredibly um, empathetic for men. Obviously, I'm not defending any act of violence against mm-hmm. women yeah. by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. But, you know, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I keyed on to the idea that like, okay, well, these are her people that are just hurting others as a result. They're just projecting 
their wounding onto others because they haven't reconciled it and therefore transcended it. So of course totally. they're just recycling it. And, and so this is the this is the conversation that I'm so confused. Mm-hmm. Why it's not more mainstream is like okay, <laughs> like clearly men are not okay. Like mm-hmm. the idea that we would call sexual violence or rape or you know domestic violence a woman's issue, yeah. which is it's just like literally that's how that's what we call it. Like I cannot tell you, mm-hmm. Jake, the amount of times that I've been invited to speak on a women's panel sure. about women's issues and women's this and women's that. And first of all, I say no now. Sure. I I say unless there's going to be men in the audience, I don't I don't care to talk about women's issues anymore unless it's to create community and connection in a safe place for women to support each other. If we're talking about how do we stop things yeah, yeah, yeah. like sexual violence and assault and domestic violence, I'm not interested sure. in sitting in a room full of women who are calling it a woman's problem because here's the thing. If anything, I don't think I think we could just say it's a human rights problem. Sure. If we're going to put a gender to it, we should call it a men's problem. This is a this is a male issue, in the sense of, um, you know, when we talk about men who are sexually abusing or assaulting or raping sure. women, that's not a woman's problem. That's a male problem. And I don't say that to to to. I don't. You know. I think blame and well. I I mean. I do feel like there's mm-hmm. accountability is a really important part of the conversation. Yep. But where I feel like we don't as a culture go is to the question going like, what are we doing? Right. Yeah. As a culture, as a society, we are clearly failing boys Mm -hmm. who turn into men who are abusing. And like, this is... This is damaging to the women that they're abusing and to the men and boys that they're abusing. It's also, they're not okay. Right. And like, why aren't we talking about that? Yeah. Well, the conversation eventually has to trans... It has to transcend gender. Otherwise, there's always going to be this pointing of the finger. You were onto something there when you said, like, this is a human problem. Every victim needs a villain. So until it transcends gender, that dynamic is always going to be um, at play. And it's only going to fuel the anger, the hurt, um, justifiably so. But it's only going to further build build the issue and fuel the fire. Um, to answer your question, what are we doing about it? Honestly, not much because men. the idea of men's mental health is still such a foreign topic. Like, I don't know about you, but I was never taught how to be angry as a child. So you're, you're talking about a generation who in many ways is, is starting to navigate an issue that they don't have any real experience with. And so an inherent part of that process, right? Learning how to walk. How do we learn how to walk? We fall down. We yeah. we get it right by doing it wrong. And so I'll be the first person to admit that I don't necessarily have the answers to issues like this, but I will say yeah. that by staying in the conversation long enough, I've learned a thing or two as to how we yeah. can move beyond these issues. Um, and, so that's that's kind of where I stand is that as men, we're, we're in many ways responsible for initiating ourselves. Mm-hmm. I have heard, I have read that anger specifically is, it is the single acceptable negative emotion. 
for a little boy to feel that like the options that we give little girls Mm -hmm. and there's plenty of plenty of gripes that I have about ways that we're socializing young girls too Mm -hmm. but that actually young girls are there's a lot more that's available to them emotionally Mm -hmm. and and is more accepted in our society than for little boys it's kind of like be happy be good be stoked be grateful whatever you know positive emotion or be angry but like certainly don't be sad. Like certainly, you know, don't be wistful. Certainly don't be uh, tender that, that it is kind of like we've channeled a whole world of hard or quote unquote negative emotions into here's the one way in which it's actually socially acceptable for you to express that. And to think that that doesn't have pretty lasting impacts Mm -hmm. on men and their mental health into adulthood is pretty foolish. Yeah. I mean, I've been in, I've been doing men's work for years. I've been doing men's rites of passage for years. Hmm. And all of men's work starts with the question, what have you been doing with your pain? Mm, That's good. And I can tell you that one of the first things that we need to teach men is how to feel. Yeah. I think I agree with that. Did you happen to see the uh, documentary about the Duger family and that like, I have, cult and all I have, abuse? I have not seen it yet, but I've heard I've okay. heard a lot of things about it. I'm very familiar with the Duggar family or the okay. Duggar family, however you pronounce it. Yeah. One thing that really struck me watching that documentary, and hear me say this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the son who was a little boy who grew up to be a man who sexually abused his sisters. Yep. I'm just like, yep, accountability. He should go to jail. It sucks, but it's like, you got to, we have to hold abusers accountable. And I found in myself this visceral sense of anger and confusion Mm -hmm. that Josh Duggar, Duggar, whatever you want to say, was not, he was only painted as a perpetrator. He was not the acknowledgement of the abuse of growing up in a cult that taught little, like he literally is just the product of the environment that he was in. And he was a good little soldier and he was doing everything that he was taught to do. And those beliefs started being embedded in him literally during infancy. And I feel like our culture has a really hard time with the both. And like he was both a perpetrator and and a a victim. Correct. And what does it look like to treat perpetrators as victims? I think people get so scared. Like, I feel like you're not even allowed to say that out loud because the immediate response is you're denying or, you're, you know, you don't want him to be held accountable. Yeah. You're making excuses. <laughs> you're questioning the culpability. And yeah. it's like, no, 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 no. None of those things. I believe he should be held accountable mm-hmm. to the fullest extent of the law and we have to acknowledge that he was a like I could just cry mm-hmm. thinking about it. Like he was a little boy mm-hmm. who was mentally and emotionally severely abused, yep. and that led him down a path of being an abuser. Totally. Well, it's you are onto something there. It's that we largely live in a society that can't deal with the tension that comes with any paradox. The paradox that someone can be both an abuser and a victim but you are right it's it's akin to you know a a dog growing up in a very abusive environment biting a child and then putting the dog down 
what, who's who's the real problem in all of this? What is the root of the issue? It's the environment that the dog was raised in. It's the experiences that he suffered through that created this pattern of behavior that had him then lash out at others. So, I mean, it's 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 very indicative of like the church's approach to sexuality, for example. <laughs> like sure. the, ch- the yeah. church doesn't know what to do with natural impulses. So what's the easiest uh you know, answer to that question is we'll just make it wrong. Right. Yeah. We yeah. we don't know how to like rehabilitate people from something like being, you know, a sexual predator. So what do we do? We just throw them in jail. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not making the abuse right. It's not minimizing the abuse whatsoever, but it's, it's bringing in and initiating a greater conversation around what does it look like to hold both of these tensions? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, here's a person who committed these really awful, uh, you know, acts um, towards women, towards his sisters, I guess. Uh, I don't, again, I haven't seen the documentary, but I'll take your word for it. Um, And then on the one hand, here is this person who grew up in this environment. We talked about the pressure cooker earlier, remember? Mm -hmm. What happens Mm -hmm. when you live inside of a pressure cooker like that? You Mm -hmm. need to have a coping mechanism. You have to have Mm -hmm. a coping mechanism. And so I can almost guarantee you that his addiction um, likely started with porn Mm -hmm. and just gradually accelerated from there Mm -hmm. into into being a sexual predator. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this is just how he learned to cope with pain. And Mm -hmm. over time, the increased level of addiction to the dopamine hit that is Mm-hmm. that one always experiences when they watch pornography just became mm-hmm. bigger and bigger and bigger. The addiction, it just mm-hmm. continued to grow. Mm-hmm. And eventually um, he needed to basically go to more and more extreme lengths to satisfy that addiction, which then mm-hmm. looks like uh, the abuse of other people. Mm-hmm. This is, this is, mm-hmm. this is more so an observation than like me psychoanalyzing uh, Josh Duggar. Uh, my sure, get sure, my sure. guess is it follows some level of trajectory around that or mm-hmm. on the fact that he had no idea what to do with his anger and so he took it out on other people. Yeah. Yeah. Some combination of those two things in all likelihood. So woo, we really we really went there. I mean, we really just dove in here, Jake. So we kind of I think hopefully we're landing at a place it sounds like we have very, very similar shared views of we need more space for the both and of like both you are a criminal and abuser who needs to be held accountable and dealing with the implications of essentially little boys who are being abused not to mention like josh josh duggar not not he's not doing well like whether or not he gets punished or held accountable like i think that even that documentary, it was like only focusing yep. on the negative impacts of the woman who had been abused, which again, never yep. in a million years would I want someone to hear me diminishing that sure. at all. Right. That stands, that is real, that is so valid. Yep. They are so courageous. They deserve to be protected, to be heard. They deserve justice 100%. Absolutely. And what I feel like the documentary didn't do was show the pain and suffering mm-hmm. like people who are abusing other people are not well. Sure. And oftentimes we get stuck in this dichotomy of like, well, well, 
winning and losing, right? Like, well, in in a in a uh, violent situation, you've got the perpetrator and the victim. The perpetrator won, the victim lost. And the reality is, it's like, oh my gosh, no! It's just it's such a loss for both. Right parties and the act of being a perpetrator of violence is like so intrinsically it's that there is violence that is done to you and to your soul and to your spirit when you enact violence on another person and I think a lot would change if we shifted that language and that in the recognition that no one's winning in this situation it's a zero-sum existence yes that is quite literally Um, what you just described okay I could keep chatting about this but there's another there's another part of this conversation that i want to get to i'm being mindful of your time because there's a lot here that we can talk about but i'm interested one of the things that i'm super passionate about and that i spend a lot of my life trying to cultivate is honest and authentic and vulnerable connection community and conversation And kind of the sense that we're only as sick as our secrets. Sure. And when we show up and when we share our vulnerabilities, our our hard things, our griefs, our tenderness, yeah. there is there's healing yeah. that happens in that. And as a as a general rule, I very much so believe that. However, I'm really interested in your story and what we can learn from your experience of okay. What would you have done differently mm-hmm. in hindsight? So you shared publicly mm-hmm. about the violence that had been done to yep. you. And the immediate aftermath of that was you referred to it as a an acute nervous system breakdown. Can you tell us a little bit about – can we dissect that a little sure. bit? Not the breakdown, but the process of kind of achieving that next – uh, that moment of public vulnerability. Yeah. Now, knowing what you know now, yeah. what would you do differently there? And where did it kind of go wrong, for lack of better terms, that had that really negative sure, sure, sure. impact on you as yeah. opposed to a more healing impact? Sure. Well, trauma by definition is anything that is too much, too soon, too fast, or too slow, too little, and not enough. So... I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? <laughs> so sure. Sure. Um, obviously I'm saying this in retrospect and looking back and yeah. being able to be like, you know what? That was probably a little bit too vulnerable of a share. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should have considered sharing that within the context of like a men's group first prior yeah. to like sharing it with everybody, everyone on the, on the interwebs, you know, um, because And that... so at that is at that point, will you just tell us who Prior to sharing it online, mm-hmm. who had you shared that information with? So the first person that I shared it with was was my therapist, was my counselor. Uh, the second person I shared it with was my best friend. And then I did share it with my immediate family. So at the time, I think it was, okay. my, um, it was my mother, my father, and, and my brother and my sister. So, um, yeah. and yeah. I believe both of my brother-in-laws. So, okay. um, so I did share it within a group of people, but sharing it with that many people that experience yeah. was inherently traumatizing in and of itself. And yeah. so looking back, I probably would not have shared it with that many people or in that way on social media at first. I probably would yeah. have, you know, warmed up to sharing it to groups of people first. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't regret it because in many ways it was the experience that I ultimately needed to mm. really heal because – it made the this high performer persona. It brought it to the forefront. It made it allowed me to see it in a way that I ha- hadn't before. 
because again, here I am having done a lot of therapy and, you know, all these personal development workshops and hired coaches. So here I am thinking that I've done something with it, done something about it. Mm -hmm. I've, I've achieved a certain level of quote unquote healing when in reality I was still performing. I was still, mm. I was still masking. I was still hiding behind this persona and I was still projecting this image of, you know, looking good and having it all together and, and being successful. And so I don't regret sharing it in the way that I did because it, it, tripped this wire that allowed me to wake up to the fact that this is what I was doing. And so then it, it actually allowed me to um, then do something about it. You know, it's one thing to uncover something. It's a whole other thing to undo it. Yeah, sure. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that of I think that is where the conversation about vulnerability and authenticity and transparency can be a little bit confused. We need more literacy in it. Right. Like we need more teaching about what is it, what does it look like, yeah. when is it appropriate, what are the different channels and mechanisms? Because I think oftentimes mm -hmm. we're, we are illiterate uh, in our culture around what that is and looks like in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. So that is where I feel like you see people either, I've never told a soul, or I've, you know, told a very, I'm still in hiding right. or then all of a sudden everybody knows my stuff. Yep. And I think your, your story is a really interesting example of how that's actually can be really dangerous. Now in your, yeah. in your circumstance, thankfully it turned out to be something that was actually really painful and hard, but then ended up being a catalyst that led to kind of a positive outcome in the long run. Yeah. But I think it's an important conversation for people to have around how are we establishing, you got to establish psychological safety. Yeah. I know for me, I generally have a rule that I do not share anything that I consider to be truly vulnerable, which the definition for me of vulnerability is I haven't healed yet. I'm still in pain. I'm still confused. I haven't worked it out. My general rule for myself is I share that with people who I'm in a two-way relationship with sure. who are committed to me and where there is a degree of agreement or kind of rules of how we do relationship that have been established. Like we've already sure. established how we deal with conflict or hard things or vulnerability or expectations around that. I do think it's really interesting. I think a lot of people uh, – I've definitely shared things on the internet before. Mm -hmm. Maybe my line for vulnerability I think is also different than some people's because I'll share something and people will be like, oh, my gosh, that's so vulnerable. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for sharing that. You have a higher degree of fluency around vulnerability. Yeah, or just like actually I've – that's no – I'm no longer in pain. Like I can remember the pain, but I – there's a famous saying that I did certainly didn't come up with about writing of kind of this idea of we write ideally you're writing from your scars not from your open wounds and that's been something that I feel like mm -hmm. for me again not in relationships real relationships but publicly when we have these para social relationships where it's like sure. you know me but I don't know you like I'm sharing something with you but you haven't committed to me mm -hmm. I, I just kind of acknowledge that that yeah, it's yeah. like I'm gonna I'm gonna give people something and they have no they have not committed. They have not agreed. There is no arrangement that is mutual between me and all of these people. And therefore, what I choose to offer, it just acknowledges the kind of intrinsic wild west of like, 
you can take this and do whatever you please with it Mm -hmm. because we're not in committed relationship with one another. Um, But that is a hard, I think, until we as a culture and society start talking about it more and putting, like, sharing. Honestly, I think Mm -hmm. this is why your story is so valuable is I think until we see that lived out and we can kind of start learning, like, what are our best practices? Because it's certainly not go into hiding. Don't share your stuff. But I also don't think the answer necessarily is, you know, sure. get on Facebook Live while you're in court getting your divorce. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, the literal definition of vulnerability uh, means a willingness to be wounded. Oh, that's good. So, hmm. you know, do I think there's something to be said about sharing within a safe container, within the context of a safe container? when you're still going through the process of active healing. Yes, I do. I think there's something to be said for that. Um, You know, I also think this atypical advice that likely came from an internet marketer um, around sharing from the place of perspective rather than from the place of pain uh, in many ways seeks to just continue this posturing and this proving because when you think about where the advice is coming from it's ultimately to preserve one's image i think healing to speak into what you mentioned earlier it does it starts with confession the catholics and aa have this nailed every meeting starts the same way with Mm -hmm. with confession Right. And that's really the only way that healing can occur, first and foremost, is by acknowledging what is the truth, what is the problem. And that's why my book is, the subtitle is what it is, The Pain Stops When the Truth Starts. That's when healing can actually begin to take place, is when I acknowledge my mm. addiction, my challenge, where I've fallen short. I acknowledge and I admit my powerlessness over it, and therefore, as a result, I claim power over it. Mm-hmm. Powerful, power, mm-hmm. powerful powerlessness. Powerful. Powerlessness. Powerlessness. Yeah, I think that's good. I think the definition, I think it's important to go back to the the actual definition of vulnerability is there is something really beautiful and sacred because even when we are in the context of really safe, deep, committed relationships that are healthy and safe, Mm -hmm. there's always a risk, right? Like there's always the risk of, but if you really knew, but if I said it out loud, if I actually shared what had been done to me or what I did or the thought that I was having or the place that I was in, would you love me? Do you want to be with me? Am I still allowed? Do I still get a seat at the table? That's the primary reason, by the way, people commit infidelity, the number one reason. Is what? Is they hold back from sharing something with their partner that they think mm. they will be judged for, ridiculed for, and that their par- partner won't share in that desire, whatever it is. Mm. So it's like it's just easier to go out and get that need met by a stranger kind of thing? Bingo. Yeah. 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 I'm curious. I actually don't know the exact gender breakdown of, of our listening audience my guess is based off of me and how I spend my life that it would I'm guessing it tends towards more women I'm curious in the last few minutes that we have together is there anything that you're like man I just 
wish after doing this work within myself, coaching and walking alongside other men who are doing this work, Mm -hmm. I just really wish that every woman knew this. What would you share with our community? Mm. Probably that men don't actually have anger issues. Oh, say more. They simply have unresolved grief issues that Mm. manifest as anger issues. Grief being unfinished hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I've heard it said that anger is actually a secondary emotion, not a primary emotion. Correct. Meaning that under all anger is a primary emotion, right. whether that is of fear a lot. In my life experience, it's usually grief, sorrow, yeah. or fear are kind of the two things that really drive a manifestation of anger. But it isn't actually the anger. It's I'm really, really sad. I'm sure shame. Maybe is shame a primary emotion? I think it is. I feel like shame could definitely be a driver of emotion um, or, excuse me, a fear. So shame, fear sadness all manifesting in the same way but it's not actually the anger it's the thing that lies beneath that when i sat with my anger long enough she told me that her real name was grief Ooh, so that's good yeah i'm super grateful for you for the work that you're doing in the world and for being with us here on the show today thanks liz i appreciate you having me All right. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. You know that for updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit LizBohannon.co or follow me on Instagram. I'm at LizBohannon and I love, love, love to hear from my pluckies. So until next time, stay plucky.